Seattle's a great baseball town. For 15 years before they got a major league team, they were at the top of, of, of attendance levels in all of minor league baseball. The programs that exist right now are not addressing empathy. They are not addressing transparency. They are not addressing collaboration, and they're not addressing accountability. That's Rick Allen, author of a book called Inside Pitch about the one-year wonder Seattle Pilots, followed by Tom Casey, who has co-written a book with Claire Herbert Dow called Leadership Development, The Next Curve to Flatten. Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. If you want to hear any previous shows, Google KKNW, click on to podcasts. You will then see all of the shows airing on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and click on to Voices of Experience, and you are there. Jim Bouton was a pitcher with the Seattle Pilots in 1969. After that season, he wrote Ball Four, a best-selling book about the castoffs and the characters of that franchise. The Pilots moved to Milwaukee and became the Brewers. The dysfunction of the team was well-known because of Ball Four, but Rick Allen's book focuses on the chaos in the front office. It turns out the executives running the Pilots match up well with the team's dysfunction. Tom Casey is the managing principal of Discussion Partner Collaborative, but his biggest claim to fame is being my cousin. All right, you can get off the floor now from laughing, Tom. Anyhow, the book he wrote is a very timely and it's extremely well-written. But first, I asked Tom to describe what his company is all about. Discussion Partner Collaborative is a little bit unusual. Okay, it is a group right now of about 200 people uh, in the Americas and Europe, uh, some in Asia, who have all been senior consultants with somebody else, Arthur D. Little, Bain, McKinsey, PwC. And what differentiates us is, one, is we are older. We actually have a, a minimum age of 55. Second is everybody has to be living outside the States or have 10 years expatriate assignment. And third is we do a lot of writing where we uh, conduct our own research or collaborate with associations, et cetera, doing their research. Who would be a perfect client for you? Oh, it can range, Paul. Uh, for example, um, uh, one that I can talk about, we're doing transition work with McDonald's. Okay, we're working with their officer population on making sure as these officers retire, okay, that not only do they have a transition plan, but also that McDonald's has continuity in terms of the next generation leader. That would be one. We can be working with the CEO of a family-owned business that's trying to determine with their children not interested in replacing them what to do with the business Okay, and we can be working with uh, human capital people and big companies, smaller companies, uh, reviewing their uh, approaches and programs and processes associated with challenges, which is one of the reasons that it was a catalyst for this book, truthfully, because we were trying to figure out what we we're going to say to this particular constituency as we came out of COVID. You know, a lot of the things we've talked about before is like you're looking at people who are executives and they're hitting the retirement in their life and um, they're making the next transition. And you've been really effective, I believe, in trying to coach these people into having a backup, well, actually a plan after they retire. Is that correct? Yeah, that, in that service offering, what we take the view is, you know, there's a real huge difference between ideas and a plan, okay? 
and the what what we take the view is you know there should be an organized way of thinking about what it is you want to do when you want to do it uh how you're going to measure success because one of the things that's in common with executives is and we've written two books on this one of the things that's in common is that these executives they need to stay edgy they need to be doing something he or she is not going to go off and start you know a flower garden and this is a definition of fulfillment they're going to want to do something so the question is what does something look like second is they will never give up control of their calendar again okay they're not going to want to work full-time and they're want, going to want to engage in activities, not only that they find meaningful, but also that they can control how much time they're going to engage in. Third is that they're entrepreneurial about something that's a passion. They, you need to have a plan to make it happen, whether in some cases it's opening B&Bs in Oregon, or in, in some cases it's writing a book, or third is you know, getting, going getting a doctorate so you can start teaching in executive programs. There has to be a plan for that. I mean, there has to be uh, ideas that you know, coalesce around something that, that is meaningful, controlling calendar, but also something that's uh, satisfying an interest that they have. I mean, we've had uh, clients that um, became session people in country western bands or country western recordings. We've had others that have started vineyards in Italy. We've had others that started NGOs for uh, to focus on inequality and ethics. Mm-hmm. So there's been a whole range of things. You know, it most clients will fall into a normative of they will do advisory work. They will sit on boards of directors. They will begin very um, uh, visible with NGOs and not-for-profits. Okay, but then they will always do quote-unquote something else. Of course. All right. They could. They may just sit there and read, and read and read for a while, but they're going to want to get back in uh, what we call back in the game. Well, you know something? I think that the word retirement should be banned from the English language. And if you say, I retired, I always kind of cringe when I hear people say that. And there was a TV personality on the air the other day, and she's leaving the show. And uh, quit thinking that I'm just going to go out and die or something like that. And I wanted to say to her, uh, then don't use the word retirement. You could say, I'm leaving the broadcasting now, but I'm going into this next career right now. And that would kind of eliminate that whole kind of stereotype I think people have. Well, I think it, there's a couple of things implied in, in this example. One is uh, they're very close uh, friends of ours and the thought leaders uh, that we work with, uh, Tammy Erickson and Linda Gratton. They would both take the view is we need to retire the word retirement. Okay, because it no longer applies. Used to be people who were retiring, they were perceived as getting a gold watch, going on a cruise, and then dying. I mean, that was basically. Well, how about the RV? Let's throw in the RV. Uh, Yeah, it depends on the part of the country you live in. Urban Boston, there's not as many RVs as there may be out there. But the the thing that you look at, or London definitely, uh, but the thing that you need to look at right now is that most people don't retire. You know, I'll be I'll be a, a good example, Paul. I mean, I'm 70 years old. I still manage global consultancy. I write books, and I'm still affiliated affiliated with the military. Okay, right. I mean, you know, and, and, and a lot of people would say, 
geez, well, you know, when are you going to stop? And my first response is, stop what? Exactly. Okay. It's a mindset who I that am. you've developed. Yeah. But it, it also, it, it, it leads into the, the um, um, an, an element of this leads into the whole point of this most recent book, which is not focused on transitions, but it is focused on what are we going to do with the future leaders who are going to replace the people who are transitioning? Got because it. One, of the, one of the things that we have seen is there's a lot of executives who are going to be coming out of this pandemic, and they're basically saying, life is too short, it's time for me to go. Well, let's go. Okay, uh, the, okay. the title of your book is Leadership Development, The Next Curve to Flatten, and that's kind of what right. your goal is here. What is the major goal of the book, and who is your target? Uh, the target, frankly, is the, the, the people who are being uh, um, qualified as the future leaders of the organization and the C-suite executives whom are, are managing he or she. And, you know, if, if you, the, the driver here was we're anticipating there will be a lot of retirements across the commercial, across the uh, NGO space faster than the organizations had planned, okay? Post coming out of the post-pandemic, we're looking at people right now just saying, I want to do something else and I want to do it now. So where does that leave the continuity for the organizations in terms of how to develop the future leaders? And what, what we're realizing is that one of the enlightening aspects that have come out of uh, this pandemic, and there's there's no good news that I can point to, but there are some learning moments from it. Is that the programs that have been in you know in place by most large and small organizations on developing future leaders are focusing on some of the right things, but they're not dealing with some of the things that employees are going to be asking for when we return to some degree of stability, if not normalcy. What you're finding is, you know, think about it as a triple whammy, Paul. Uh, you know, you've got the pandemic. You've got huge economic distress, people losing their jobs, wondering how they're going to pay their rent, and or those people who have means wondering what the health of their portfolio is. Then you have the whole situation, other societies looking at us having to deal with what are we going to do to make sure that we don't ignore again the whole issue here of institutional racism. Now, everybody's got opinions on, you know, how well we're dealing with all three, and I'll let people have their opinion. But the opinion I have is, based on the surveys we've been doing and the discussions we've been having is, the opinion I have, and which is the impetus for writing this book is, fine, you can have your opinions on, on, uh, how we're positioned and dealing with those. But the one thing that is in common is we're not doing a good enough job to prepare the next generation of leaders to come in behind the baby boomers and the older generation X, those people who are 50 who are going to go off and do something else. And what we're looking at is what's missing. That was the whole intent we, we were coming at. And frankly, based on the surveys that we were doing, Okay, and the discussions we were having, uh, we found that there's a huge gap in four specific areas. The programs that exist right now are not addressing 
empathy. They are not addressing transparency. They are not addressing collaboration, and they're not addressing accountability. They're doing great jobs in terms of, uh, you know, focus on market share. They're doing great jobs on how to, to quantify the economics, uh, 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 new product development, et cetera. But they're not focused at all or enough, sufficiently in our opinion, on the behaviors that the new generation of workers who are you know, being battle-tested by this pandemic and everything else are going to be looking for from their leaders. That's Tom Casey. If you'd like to order a copy of Leadership Development, The Next Curve to Flatten, visit Amazon or DiscussionPartner.com. That's Amazon or DiscussionPartner.com, all one word. Hey, Tom, I don't think you enjoyed the last three seconds of Sunday Night Football as much as we did in Seattle. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Rick Allen, author of Inside Pitch, has joined us. The book is about the front office executives and how they and other circumstances led to the collapse of the Seattle Pilots after only one year. What I find interesting is that you were never really a Seattle Pilots fan, but this story really took hold with you and it actually surfaced when you were on a trip in Africa. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, first of all, I was a big ball war fan. So I knew about the pilots. But in 1969, I was in ROTC summer camp, so I couldn't attend a single game, even if I wanted to. So I never attended the pilots game. I didn't have the faintest clue I'd ever be writing a book about the pilots. But my wife and I are in Africa. We're on a tour of Africa with a small tour group. We didn't know anybody in the group. And one night, and uh, we're sitting at a dinner table with a different group of eight or how many of them were. And this guy starts talking about his funny time in baseball. And he's telling these kind of hilarious stories about administration and baseball. And, you know, I'm really intrigued. And I said, well, where, who who'd you work for? And he said, well, the 1969 Seattle Pilots. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, because the, the Boughton book, Ball 4, is all about kind of the characters who are in spikes and, and gloves on the field. And this guy's telling the same kind of funny stories about guys in suits and ties in the front office. And I'm thinking, well, that would be an interesting thing to know more about because it's it gives a better kind of overall picture of the whole franchise so i said well when we returned to the states he lived in arizona and we go down to arizona for spring training when we returned to the states and i go down for spring training 
can we get together? I'd like to pursue this a little bit further. So we did that next spring. And as we're talking in Arizona, he says, yeah, and and, uh, there's another guy who worked for me. He's here in Arizona, too. His name's Jim Kittlesby. And I thought, well, that's funny. I know a guy named Jim Kittlesby who I worked with at PLU. He says, yeah, that's him. I said, what? And he said, yeah, he he was with the pilots. And and actually, he had worked for the San Francisco Giants before he joined the pilots. Sounds like this was just meant to be. Yeah, I mean, literally. It just fell into my lap. They started talking, and, of course, the memories started flowing. And then the next spring, I said, well, let's continue this because uh, it's going to take a while to kind of put together next spring. So the next spring I come down, the first thing I find out is Jim and Bob and the guy who was Lou Pinella's roommate are on a panel at the retirement community that I live in, and they're given this presentation. And so I talked to Lou Pinella's roommate, and that's how the Lou Pinella story got into the book. And it's just one thing after another. So this year I go down, I'm finishing the book, and we pull into our house, coming driving down from Tacoma to Arizona, and our new next-door neighbors are standing out in the yard. We knew where we were going to have next-door neighbors. And I get out of the car with a Rainier's hat on, and my neighbor says, oh, uh, Tacoma Rainier's hat. He says, yeah, I used to work for the uh, Seattle Angels. 1955, I was the bat boy. I couldn't believe it. So it was just one thing after another. And then I uh, get this. So I call, I'm trying to figure out how to get the book into Costco. And I know the, you know, I, I'm Michael Thompson, who owns the Rainiers. He had a guy from Costco on the board. They hooked me up with a book buyer. The book buyer client calls me, and I can tell she's kind of thinking, well, I'm being forced into this. She says, okay, tell me what your book's about. And I said, oh, it's about the 69 pilots and Judy Soriano, except from the behind the curtains of the executive office. And she says, oh, really? Kathy Soriano is my best friend. Kathy Soriano is the little girl in the book who was left outside the ballpark on opening day and got locked out of the ballpark, and she didn't have a ticket. And I have that story in the book. Amazing. I mean, talk about uh, coincidences or karma or whatever. Yeah, you were destined to write this very entertaining and solid book. Something that you said earlier about Seattle being a baseball town. I talked to Art Teal. Do you know Art or of Yeah, him? I don't know him personally, but I know Anyhow, we talked about the pilots, and he wrote a book about the Mariners as well. And he said that his assessment was that Seattle has never been a bad baseball town, but it was been a town of bad baseball for a number of years. And he pointed out is that when we got the Mariners, that was born of a lawsuit, essentially, with the Seattle Pilots when the, yeah. they moved um, yeah. the team to Milwaukee. But when the Mariners opened up, they didn't have a winning season until – 1992, and they started drawing well, but in 1995 was the lightning year for the Mariners, and all of a sudden, people were turning out by the millions. It just took one season for baseball to catch on here. They had a series of kind of owners who were in it to turn the franchise over and make a lot of money in the sale, which they did. I mean, the franchise now is worth $1.5 billion. And a lot of money is made by having the public pay for the pay for the stadiums, which is what happened with the Kingdom and pretty much what happened with now called T-Mobile T- Park. And Bud Selig did the same thing when he bought the franchise out of bankruptcy. I mean, he bought the he bought the franchise with pilots out of bankruptcy for ten point eight million dollars, and he's, now it's worth one point four billion. Now you mentioned, and I think it's so true. We know the legend of Ball Four and Jim Bouton and things, but. You're peeking behind the curtain of the executives running the team as the build-up during the season and, yeah. and postseason. 
What are a couple anecdotal stories you'd like to share about that? When the Sorianos bought the AAA Angel franchise from California to transition into the pilots, along with that deal came Marvin Milks, the general manager, because he looked on paper like that was a good deal because he was in California at the time that the Angels were an expansion club and helped them through the expansion. And he was in charge of the Seattle team as an assistant general manager in California and, and was in charge of the Seattle AAA team. So they thought that would be a natural transition. But what they didn't know, the Sorianos did not know, was that he was a tyrant. And he would, he'd kick holes in desks and yell and scream at people. He wouldn't listen to people. So I think California knew that what they were getting rid of, but nobody asked the right questions. And the Sorianos kind of, I think, my, my sense of it is, they got taken advantage of. And that turned into a disaster. They drafted Lou Pinella. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Lou Pinella was originally a pilot rookie. And he was the hottest hitter in spring training all the way through spring training. They ended spring training, he was still a pilot. On April Fool's Day, 1969, they traded Lou Pinella to Kansas City, the other expansion team. And Lou Pinella immediately played his way into the American League Rookie of the Year. So that's just an example of the kind of bad stuff that happened. Another thing was they decided, the pilots decided to draft older guys because they felt like their main source of revenue was going to be attendance. So they needed to have names that would draw people into the stadium. They had a poor, really poor TV contract. They had a mediocre radio contract. They had to borrow money from the concessionaire to even start the season. So they were only getting 20% of concessions. They were getting no uh, TV shared revenue from the rest of the week for three years. So the only thing they could count on was attendance. So they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to draft older players. Mostly. Even he was 27 as a rookie. So they did that. And then for the first month and a half of the season, they did pretty well because they had some veterans. But after that, everything started to break down. So the whole thing broke down as the, as the season went on and attendance went lower and lower and lower. Now, the Pilots did not end the season last in baseball in attendance. They beat four other teams in the major leagues in attendance. But because attendance was their only source of income, just about, they couldn't make it. They had to have a million people, and they only had 677,000, so they went broke. You mentioned you were there opening day. Opening day is a story all in itself. It was a disaster for the team. Well, they yeah. were still building the stadium. Oh, I remember. I can up. tell you, I was there, and I was walking into the stadium, and they were on the roof working with rivets on the roof, and they were working the bleachers in center field. Gorgeous day, but the riveting was going on right up till the first pitch. Or no, wait, excuse me. They had some opening ceremonies, and it stopped then. But the workers were up on the roof looking over down in the stadium, kind of with their elbows on the top of the roof. And then as soon as that game was over... They started playing the Go, Go, You Pilot song, and then the riveting started again before we were even out of the stadium. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the stories in this book is about what happened to a number of the people who came in. They were in walkie-talkies up in the stadium. As they built the seats, they would walkie-talkie down and say, okay, we just got seat number 9, 10, 11, and 12 done in section 104. You can sell that now. They would sell the ticket. The people would walk up. And the seats would just be being uh, painted or they were just rough, rough lumbered in. They had a number of people who ripped out the bottom of their pants on the lumber on opening day and other people who sat down in seats that still had paint that wasn't dry yet and they had to pay all the, the dry cleaning costs. 
I mean, it was, it was a disaster. <laughs> and it wasn't, I don't know if it was so, your book or another one, but just to interject, didn't someone get locked into a porta potty or something? Yeah, I got locked in overnight? Yeah. Well, the, the stadium didn't have a good plumbing system. So they had porta potties outside the stadium. And one of the stories is, and this was confirmed by both Bob and Jim, and, but the guy who told it was Bill Sears, and I picked it up from somebody else's research, but I confirmed it with Bob and Jim. Some guy got drunk during a game sometime in the summer, went into the porta potties and went to sleep. And of course, they, they lock all the porta potties up at night. So they locked all the porta potties, just walked by and locked them up as they went, through, went by. And the next morning, everybody comes by and they're getting ready for the game. They're unlocking all the porta potties. They unlock this one porta potty and a guy walks out. This stuff scared the crap out of everybody, so to speak. You can't make that <laughs> stuff up. So we have a lot of Lou Pinello like fans yeah. here in Seattle. He was probably, Ken Griffey Jr. is probably our most heralded baseball player by far. And uh, But there's Lou Pinello. Yeah. Everybody has a soft spot in their heart at him as manager. Can you give us yeah. a couple stories about him from your book? Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, it's one of the big stories in the book about, it's not a lot about ballplayers, but there, because it's about the business side, but I do mention ballplayers in terms of the dysfunction of the organization and how it impacted the team. So one of the stories is about how Lou, you know, he has a reputation for being really intense and it's a well-earned reputation. And so uh, this, one of the major story in the book is about how his intensity really didn't work with Joe Schultz, who was a really laid-back manager, very famous for, you know, all kinds of silly quotes and stuff like that. And he was kind of, oh, okay, let's go get him, let's have a few beers. And Lou, of course, was intense as hell. So he didn't, the two of them didn't match up. And Marvin Milk, the GM, apparently really didn't like Lou because Lou was a hard ass. And so they traded him, and it came back to bite him. Yeah. Now, to show his intensity in the book, I also talked about how Lou was so intense as a manager even that he came in after one game that the Mariners lost in the last innings. And the first thing he did was kick over the table and had all the food for the players on and started screaming and yelling. And on Facebook, where I'm advertising the book, I got a note from a guy who says, I'm so glad you included that story, Lou Pinella. It's exactly how it happened. He kicked over the table the sterno dishes started a fire on the floor and Chris Bosio had to come over and turn and put the fire out with a couple of cartons of milk. So for the next two weeks, it smelled like burnt milk in the clubhouse. So I'm so <laughs> glad you got that. I was the guy who had just set the food on the table. I was working as a volunteer clubhouse assistant, set the food on the table. Lou came in and I was standing there when he kicked it over. He scared the hell out of everybody. Rick Allen. Thank you for keeping the memory of the Seattle Pilots alive. Visit Amazon to get a copy of the book, or you can also get it on Kindle. If you enjoy quirky stories that are true, you will definitely enjoy this book. So we are out of time for today. Remember to not only register, but actually vote in the most consequential election of our times. And that is no exaggeration. Next week, I'm thrilled that former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice will be joining us. Norm served as mayor from 1989 to 1997. He just completed a book called Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of Civic Engagement. It is available on Amazon. Could this book be more timely? I have read it and highly recommend it. The Seattle Times said in 2013 
Norm was one of the best mayors in Seattle's history. No argument from me. Have a great rest of the week. <laughs>